What the first glitter installation did for me was that it taught me that I can use whatever material the idea calls for. And I'm 10 years in with that. It was one of the most important things that I've ever learned is that I am not, I do not need to remain allegiant to oil on canvas, to drawing, to glitter, or to anything. I can use whatever I need to use to get the point across. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 170th episode, I'm joined by Amy Rydell, who is a multimedia artist from St. Louis, and we're talking with her all about her exhibition that's wrapping up this week called Radar Home 11-8-13. It's at the Sheldon Concert Hall and Art Galleries in St. Louis. So if you're able to still, please check it out. Otherwise, go to amyrydell.com. Again, there's installation shots up there to check out. If this is the first time you're hearing a studio break, maybe you've been guided by Amy herself, uh, please feel free to check out all the other podcasts on studiobreak.com. Again, each of the posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, and these candid interviews where we discuss their work and their history and all sorts of good stuff. Again, if you're interested, please feel free to like our Facebook page. Again, we provide a number of updates, new podcasts, and information there, so please like our Facebook page. You can follow us at studio-break.tumblr. And last but not least, please go to Twitter and follow at Studio Break. And I guess if you do want to listen to the podcast, I would highly recommend subscribing to it in iTunes. You'll find a link in this very post, so please go ahead and do that as well. With that out of the way, here is our interview with Amy Rydell. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Amy Rydell. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And uh, before we begin, just remind us, are you, you're currently a uh, St. Louis resident, is that correct? That's correct. I was born and raised here. I left for about six years for some adventures that I'm sure I'll tell you all about. And I settled back here in 2010. Awesome. And um, if you heard one of these before, you know that I always like to get to the root, um, maybe like the child artist, if you will. So is that something that's always been um, at play in your life, you know, kind of like making things and and working with your hands uh, as you're growing up? It really has. Um, There's no way around it. I have been making marks and drawing and coloring since I was a little girl. I used to sit on my front porch and I would actually, I would call for my friend Trevor to come play with me. And while he would, while he was not coming to play with me, I would color all of the landscaping rocks around our landscaping. And that actually found its way in my first year of grad school into my artwork again, which is funny. But um, yes, I've always been um, making marks. I think that's how I would say it. Preschool and before then. And did you always know that you wanted to be an artist uh, growing up or did that come about through, you know, other experiences or maybe through more formal experiences? Um, No, again, easy answer. I've been saying I want to be an artist since I was three or four years old. Gosh, that's incredible, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My cousin Becky, um, I remember the day she taught me how to color within the lines of a coloring book, which, of course, is the very thing I teach my students not to do. But um, I remember that moment was so wonderful for me. 
And she was interested in art and I wanted to be like my older cousin, of course. So, um, that's when I started saying that. And, um, with the exception of some pretty normal preteen, um, <laughs> daydreams of wanting to be maybe a marine biologist or a chef, I have always wanted to be an artist. And did you take a lot of the uh, typical classes, uh, you know, like through grade school, through high school that, you know, maybe like a lot of people take? Probably not quite. I don't, I, I was brought up in the suburbs of St. Louis in a pretty white Catholic bubble. I went to 12 years of private Catholic school and we had great art classes and I loved them, but there was no, there were no sort of like gifted programs. There was nothing more to aspire to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I did the normal stuff that normal for me at that time. Also, I'm curious, you know, you just kind of talked a little bit about, you know, always wanted to be an artist, but then also, you know, when you started college, you wanted to be maybe a marine biologist. Um, you know, I'm just kind of curious, um, did you kind of like start more from like a, you know, like an area of like graphic design or something like that? Or did you kind of always know that you, you kind of wanted to, to pursue, you know, fine art? I tried to find some solutions to um, the, you know, the ever present problem of also making a living. Um, I'm from a, you know, I'm a first generation college student and come from a wonderful, loving, supportive and blue collar family. So wanting to be an artist is not, it's not that it wasn't supported. I've always been supported, but it certainly wasn't understood. And I'm sure my parents were a little concerned about how I would survive. Um, so my first two years of college, I went to a community college here and I tried to find ways to merge things. I said I would go into art therapy or maybe I would teach art at a high school level. So I was a psychology major at first with an art minor. And I loved psychology, but I was about to finish up my minor because, of course, I jammed all my art classes into my schedule and, and was very focused on that. I was about to finish that minor when I realized kind of, um, you know, who am I kidding here? <laughs> what am I doing? I know I want to be an artist. So I changed my major to studio art. Not that schooling equates becoming an artist, but um, that's, that's when that, that moment happened. And I've stuck with it ever since. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, especially to kind of like look over your work now, there's, you know, so many different facets, um, you know, you make installations, you do videos, you do painting and drawing. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, was that something that was always there or did you kind of start out making more, um, maybe traditional, um, 2d, you know, painting and drawing as you were, you know, coming up through school? Um, I was heavily invested in drawing. Mm-hmm. And that led to painting, which I have struggled with the whole, just this whole time, my whole life, I guess I'd say. Drawing always came natural to me. Painting did not. Um, but I understood painting to be, I didn't understand it. I was taught that painting was, you know, more academically rigorous or had such a history. So I wanted to excel at it. I never, <laughs> I still never have. But um, yeah, drawing and painting were the the cornerstones, I guess, for my art practice. And then once I went to graduate school, had some more life experience. Now I'm, you know, I'm almost, I'm almost nine years out of graduate school now. Um, 
And now I do everything I can to rebel against those ideas of drawing and painting as, you know, and their academic rigor. You know, I'm kind of curious then. So, you know, you have a couple of years um, before you move on to your BFA degree at the University of Missouri. Um, were there any kind of like early instances that you can think back when you started your BFA degree that kind of, I don't know, shaped or kind of influenced um, the way that you thought about art, you know, because um, I know for a lot of artists, again, you know, there are certain instances that kind of get you to think about, you know, maybe what, what art could be um, or maybe change it in a way that you maybe hadn't quite seen it like that before. Totally. Um, I definitely remember those moments. And um, like you said, I was at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and I was working with my professor, Phil Robinson, who is a sculptor and artist, and, and he was wonderful and um, enlightened me to all kinds of things I didn't know about. And at one point, I got to go on this uh, trip with my class, my BFA class, to New York, and we saw the 2004 Whitney Biennial. And that was the first time I had seen anything like that. And um, I'm not, I'm still not quite sure how to say Kusama's first name, Yayoi Kusama. I saw her infinity room at the Whitney and that blew my mind and taught me the lack of borders within art and just um, propelled me in my future, want, wanting to immerse my viewer in, uh, with ideas of installation. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other one real formative learning experience was, um, I had always worked very realistically, very, a lot of autobiographical information, kind of what I always call it like bad teenage poetry looking artwork is what I made. And, um, then I learned more about the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres and kind of the power of a minimal gesture mm -hmm. and um, just all of the meaning that can be implicated through those minimal or conceptual gestures. And that was another like huge crux of my development, I think. But was that something that you then, you know, like kind of started exploring um, in terms of, you know, maybe working installations or, you know, other types of uh, media? Is that something that you kind of dove right into or is that something that wound up coming later? I will say absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I had learned about them. I, I wanted to make work that had that power and I was just completely clueless um, on how to do that. So it did not, unfortunately, change my work until a few years later. Sure. And did you wind up taking off uh, time in between school then? Um, I only took a little over a year off. And in that year, I left St. Louis for my first time um, to live on 65 acres in a place called Abiquiu, New Mexico. It's an hour north of Santa Fe. And I was a part-time caretaker of a vineyard and ranch there. And I also um, worked off and on at a variety of places. I was a front desk girl at the Abiquiu Inn, and I taught art at the local El Rito Library branch. And then I started working as a contemporary art gallery assistant in Santa Fe. And um, during that little over a year that I was in New Mexico, that was a lot of experiences. And working in that gallery is one of the things that taught me that it, I needed to go to graduate school, actually. 
And was there, you know, like a, a particular instance or a need or I don't know, so, something that made you kind of like reevaluate um, to maybe, you know, make you think that you needed to kind of go back and, and kind of like really invest time and, and, and study um and again, it's, it's just kind of really weird anyways, just because, you know, um, <laughs> art is, you know, such an interesting, uh, choice. Right. Um, yeah, I feel like it chooses you sometimes. Um, the graduate school decision, and I talk about this with people that are thinking about it because like many of my peers, I am, you know, forever in debt because of it, but I, I would never take it back. Uh, I realized First of all, I was completely isolated in the high desert mountains of New Mexico after growing up in the suburbs of St. Louis. So I was longing for an art community that had maybe some people a little closer to my age. I was 23 and 24 at the time. And then the main driving force was that working in this contemporary gallery and kind of acting in a position where there was some schmoozing and stuff, which, you know, is not not great. But I realized there was, there were all of these concepts and theories and histories that I just was clueless about regarding visual art. And, um, I hate feeling stupid. (laughs) I do, you know, I don't like being in the dark about anything. And I think there are plenty of people that when they feel that, or when they realize that about themselves, they could seek out the information. They could perhaps, um, go to their library, just read a lot of books and maybe, Maybe that would satisfy their graduate school desires, but I knew I needed a classroom setting. I needed the guidance of elders or peers. I needed the rigor to to acquire the things that I knew I was missing out on. And so how did you wind up coming to Tennessee? Well, well like I said, living in that um, beautiful, amazing New Mexican landscape was awesome, but I was so terribly homesick. I miss my family a lot, Um, but uh, my heart, you know, wanted to be with the mountains. So I figured that the University of Tennessee, and I had a friend there at the time who was in the the graduate program, so I knew a little bit about it. Um, I figured it's eight hours closer to home and there's some mountains nearby. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's try this. I'm afraid I did not apply there because of the rating of the program, although it was a very, like, wonderful rigorous, um, challenging program. That's not what made me apply there, which I I would not recommend that to students. (laughs) It's weird to think about how any of that stuff works because I I think no matter where you're at, um, most of the time it just comes down to, you know, your level of engagement, um, with faculty, with peers, um, you know, and and just putting a lot of hard work and, and time and effort into what you're doing. Right. And, um, how they interact, how engaged they are and what's important to them, you know, what kind of quality of life they want. I've never been a person to let things like rankings, school rankings, or, you know, that sort of cattle herd mentality of what artists are supposed to do and where we are supposed to live. I have always been very clear about my quality of life kind of coming first. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's how I've made a lot of my decisions. Well, and so how is that experience, um, you know, kind of coming back? Because, uh, again, you kind of explained you had a little bit of time away from uh, school, you know, and then you come back and it's, you know, again, always weird just because, um, 
you know, they always kind of say like, you're never going to have this opportunity again, or, you know, this level of engagement. Um, but to be kind of around all these people with similar goals and ambitions, um, you know, what was that, that, uh, experience like to start? No, oh, David, it was just the worst. <laughs> it, was like, it was so terrible. Oh man. We drove across the country from this beautiful Southwestern landscape to like the Smoky Mountain Valley, Tennessee River Valley, which Knoxville is beautiful in its own way, but it was, you know, just the opposite of what I had been living in. So that landscape change and society shift was was tough for me. And then being immersed in this um, competitive but also supportive art program Uh, It was jarring. It was pretty tough. I feel like I had had a taste of life, you know? I'd had a taste of experience and falling down and and dealing with heartache and then picking yourself back up and just seeing beautiful parts of the country. And then it felt like I was out of place. It felt like going to graduate school for art is about one of the most elitist things a person can do, and that's not how I identify Um, So I struggled with that for the first year completely. And we talked about it openly in our graduate seminar about those issues, which I'm very thankful for. But um, it it was tough. But it was like um, accelerated growth. That's how I think of it. Yeah, it really is, you know. Um, And again, like we were talking about before the podcast, you know, sometimes it might be – I feel it's like a little – different for people outside of that kind of community, you know, to kind of understand or, or kind of get an idea of, you know, what that process is like. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, just to kind of think about this relative to, uh, you know, your experience in school, um, you know, were there any kind of like, um, you know, things early on then that kind of like uh, reshaped the way that you, you know, started uh, going after your work, um, especially after, you know, kind of like starting off with this, um, you know, relatively hard start, I guess, if you will. Some of the most important changes in my work happened um, in that first year of graduate school, actually, Um, because it was such a a jarring transition for me. And because I, I, my starting point for my work is often out of emotional distress. Mm -hmm. So it starts as a coping mechanism. It doesn't end there, but that's where it begins. And um, when I was showing that work to my professors and some of my classmates, I was told pretty often in the beginning um, that it was just too journalistic, too voyeuristic, you know, kind of got the sense it wouldn't appeal to the masses. Uh, And that hurt me. I understood it, but it hurt me. I also think that was just a part of their, their teaching process at the time. But it kind of made me sterilize that work, and it made me look outward instead of constantly sourcing from within for how to make work. And that's when I began looking at weather radar, actually, and which has remained a part of my work for over 10 years now. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, just because I think it's such an integral part of what you do um... – you know, rather than me try to guess what, you know, that's all about, why, why don't you just take a, a second to, you know, kind of break down um, your, your interest in it and then, you know, again, how that's kind of influenced uh, your work. Sure. I was making work that included a lot of text and kind of raw mark making, representational imagery, 
Um, but again, pretty literal, including narrative and also autobiographical. And when I was told that that work was to this or to that, I was, I started looking for other ways to say the same thing because I just knew, you know, we're all dealing with heartbreak. We're all dealing with varying levels of, if not depression and at times sadness, maybe even anxiety, but we're not supposed to talk about it. And again, this was over 10 years ago. And I felt at that time, we really, as a woman, if you were to, or anyone, if you were to discuss those things, you know, it was viewed as a weakness. And, um, that's when I started looking at the weather radar imagery. I realized one day while seeing a severe weather warning on the TV that when they highlight those counties that are in a direct threat, they always use a, a really saturated color. The weather radar itself, which shows um, a significant weather event, you know, the most dangerous areas are hot pink or red. And I just thought, isn't that so interesting that like the most dangerous areas or the areas in imminent danger are highlighted so beautifully. And that's when I kind of began uh, researching weather radar quite a bit, contacting local meteorologists, learning a little bit more about that so that I could use Doppler radar of storms um, basically as a symbol of emotional distress. And it started there. Um, I've continued to use the weather radar, but the thing that it is a stand-in for has kind of evolved through the years. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting idea because it, you know, reflects uh, so much of that, you know, kind of instability um, of what life is, you know? Right. And it's interesting to think about it in this new context because, you know, most of the time, you know, we're just looking at whether um, a radar is, you know, something that's just, um, you know, just information. Right. Yeah, you know, I just think that makes so much sense. Um, and I guess to kind of bring this around um, to your work again, you know, how did this wind up like influencing your, your work in those final years? And, um, you know, how did it appear in, in terms of your um, MFA work? The first iterations of working with the weather radar were pretty straight up traditional 48 inch by 48 inch oil on canvas paintings. And they appeared as, you know, colorful, non-objective works that, you know, people probably thought were just about formal elements, if they were about anything at all. Um, but really, they were direct representations of Doppler radar. So I loved that trick that I started playing on people. That was the first series. And the way I would acquire my weather radar to keep it in line with being very meaningful for me is I, I have these great websites, and I would look up the date and time of a significant personal event. I would research um, the weather of only places where I had lived or where people I love have lived or lost. And I, I, start, I began collecting weather radar of those locations and those dates and times. And those are the storms that I would then paint. And, um, again, like I said, when I saw the Kusama piece at the Whitney Biennial in 04, it wasn't until 2007 that I made my first artwork that in my mind was like paying homage to that experience where one of my four by four foot oil paintings, the way I kind of talk about it is it like melted to the floor and I did my first glitter installation and I recreated 
Doppler weather radar of an ice storm over St. Louis at a Knoxville gallery, um, completely out of colored sand and loose glitter on the floor. It was 17 feet in diameter. And it was beautiful. It was like so dreamy. And then at the end of the exhibit, I swept and vacuumed it up. So, of course, you know, I'm not the first person to do things like that. We all know that. But um, at the time, it was such a meaningful and poetic gesture because that whole show and that installation was about a big breakup. It was about a period of, of bouncing around friends' couches, not really having a home for a while, and dealing with um, one of my first bouts of uh, major depression and anxiety. So, you know, that's what it was all about. I don't... I'm an open book. It's fine for me to discuss those things. I don't know if that's, you know, of course, what the viewer got out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, it's just kind of interesting because people always think of like, you know, something has to be original, but, you know, clearly you had this idea that you executed. So for you, it's an original thought. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really interesting about kind of like sucking this all up. It's almost like wiping the slate clean, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I guess just kind of like thinking about the work kind of moving forward, um, did it kind of like open up a lot of new doors, um, you know, in terms of just thinking about, you know, different ways that you might experiment? It did. It, I mean, logistically, the finances, my sore back, you know, <laughs> those, those things, um, those things aside, yes, it definitely did. It opened up, you know, all of the, the meaning, again, like Felix Gonzalez Torres, all of the meaning that can be inherent in these gestures. And, um, in imagery that appears to only be about formal elements. It just really opened up my whole world of art making at that time. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think of installation as something that's a lot more physical. Um, you know, you're more aware of your body as you're, you're walking around a piece. Um, and again, I, I guess, you know, just how, how is that different from maybe like what you were doing before, or at least the way that you saw it um, before with your work? It was so satisfying and I felt like I had really done something that had the potential to affect people um, and provide them with a, a really unique experience. So I was, I was really happy about that. The time I do an installation, I am brought back to painting or drawing or more reasonable-sized things that I can handle on my studio desk, you know? And then after I've worked on those, let's say I've worked on a really detailed um, kind of laborious painting. After a month or two of that, I'm ready to just blast out some glitter on the floor somewhere. Um, so I, I keep going back and forth. And essentially, I will. what the, glitter in, the first glitter installation did for me was that it taught me that I can use whatever material the idea calls for. And I'm 10 years in with that. It was one of the most important things that I've ever learned was that I am not, I do not need to remain allegiant to oil on canvas, to drawing, to glitter, or to anything. I can use whatever I need to use to get the point across. Interesting. And um, so again, you kind of described that, you know, you've been kind of reworking these ideas uh, more or less for the past 10 years or so. Um, what, what brought you back to St. Louis? My husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay, makes sense. <laughs> and my family. I graduated from UT Knoxville in 2008, and I 
was really lucky to get a full-time teaching position at, at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee. I was there for two years, and while I was there, my husband, who had been my on-and-off significant other for 10 years, um, he was living here in St. Louis going to graduate school for high school counseling, and we ended up getting married after my first year teaching in Cookville. And so we lived apart our first year of marriage, like many couples do in academia. Um, but that, again, I told you earlier about the, the quality of life decision-making process for me. That was not the life I wanted. So I resigned and I came home in 2010 and I've been an adjunct ever since. Yeah. You know, and I think it's an interesting balance, you know, between, um, you know, being in the studio, being, especially because artists are really kind of prone to want that time um, to be able to balance that out with other responsibilities, um, you know, with getting job applications out and, you know, applying for shows and making work and, and also having, you know, like a, a meaningful life. That's right. And so again, you've been teaching for a couple of years, you walk away from this job um, so that you can be with your husband and your family and, and to kind of um, have this balance. Um, you know, again, I would imagine that would be something else that would completely, you know, reshape um, your work. Uh, you're right. It definitely did. Um, my family and that fear of loss of them or loss of love or loss of relationships and family that was still in my work, even when I came home, which was baffling. Um, and I, I, I told some, some friends at the time, like, how am I still homesick when I'm living 15 minutes away from my family? Um, and so I've been, you know, investigating that a little bit and there's some probably obvious, probably something went wrong in my psychological development. But uh, beyond that, it's turned into, you know, kind of investigating the fear, ideas of fear um, and fear of death and, and other issues of the human condition. But then it, it came around to realizing it's really about love. And that actually has been my exploration the past six years that I've been home and brings me up to current day as a theme in my artwork. And so again, you know, you've been making this work for a number of years and, you know, you're continuing to work through these ideas. One of the things that I'm, I'm kind of curious about, we haven't really talked about too much is, you know, just what um, changes um, when you have an idea or maybe it's like an exhibition. Um, do you wind up taking a lot of photographs? Um, do you, you know, sketch? Do you write things out and kind of figure things out that way? Um, what's the process that, that kind of goes into, um, you know, thinking about how, you know, one of your ideas um, eventually kind of becomes resolved as a, a new piece of art? Everything you just mentioned is a part <laughs> of my practice. Definitely. Um, I do a lot of photographing uh, my family, family moments. As you could see in my, my current show, um, those moments have included simple things like my mom decorating the Christmas tree to documenting my grandma's you know last living breaths, that I have a variety of photographs. And with those photographs comes writing. Um, but first, before the writing is usually some mark making and some sketching, um, some painting, or even just like gluing materials together in my studio, uh, while, you know, all the while sort of processing and replaying those photos I just took or the, the writing that I did. 
Yeah, and and I guess you know because I, I want to say that you mentioned early on something maybe about portraiture, and again I'm I'm thinking about that uh, in relationship to kind of some of the work that comes after um, to think about relationships. So we've been talking about relationships and family and things like that. You know, obviously, you know, your work kind of becomes a little bit more personal in terms of you know uh, basing it off of you know your your mom you know learning that she has cancer. And, and again, it just seems like it's almost like a, a, a realization or, you know, um, you know, things are just coming to light that maybe um, artists sometimes don't think about. Um, and I don't know, it almost kind of, like, again, kind of finds a way in your work, but it almost becomes like kind of autobiographical. And again, maybe <laughs> maybe the kind of thing that you kind of alluded to um, that you were maybe even a hard time about in graduate school is uh, having more emotional, raw work. Um, but, but I would imagine that would be something that really reshape things as well? Um, it has been uh, quite a ride with that. Uh, having, you know, I, I told you that while my family was healthy and it, just that I moved away, I was making work about them and, and missing them. So when my mom was, was diagnosed with cancer in 2013, which by the way, she's doing great right now. Excellent. Uh, cancer free. It's wonderful. Uh, but when she was diagnosed, it was a pretty traumatic experience for multiple reasons that, that we don't need to get into. First of all, it's cancer, and that's scary. But um, at the time, we didn't understand that, that there are plenty of cancers and plenty of people living with it every day, that it does not have to be a death sentence. But my family and I, we didn't quite realize that at the time. So it just put us into a state of shock. And then, let's see, there was treatment, which lasted... Um, over a year with a stem cell transplant. So I was, I'm an oldest daughter. I have a younger brother who's wonderful, but, um, you know, I, I did some caregiving with my mom was spent most of my time when I wasn't teaching, uh, with my family. And so I did not make work for a year, I'd say. So when it was time to make work again, which I was, I really had to become ready to do that. Uh, the stuff that was coming out was just so bad, so terrible. And it's like I reverted to that, to pre-graduate school. Um, I say revert, which sounds negative, and I, I don't really mean that. I started producing pretty raw stuff again. And um, for a while, I went through my usual process of, okay, so emote and make journalistic kind of ugly work and then like sterilize it. You know, I, I sterilized it with the weather radar. And so I started doing that again and uh, like distilling this raw emotion down into a soft science. That's kind of how people think about meteorology. And, um, and the more work I did, actually the, the years went on and one ant and then another ant was diagnosed with cancer. And then my grandma passed away early 2016 from non-cancer causes. Um, but this was all on the same side of my family, my mom's side. And that was a lot of, um, obviously, it's a lot of distress for a tight-knit family. And I, the more that this was happening, that we were going through this, I'm still making work, I kind of stopped distilling and left a lot of the portraits just raw, straight up, you know, really kind of messy, emotive portraits. 
and I've been very nervous about it this whole time. I still kind of can't believe I put those on display at a respected gallery in St. Louis because for me, they're the thing that my professors would tell me were just too personal, you know, but, um, no, I'm proud of it. I feel like that those portraits maybe can help people connect. Yeah. And I guess just to, to be more specific, um, you know, maybe for some of the listeners, um, you know, are, are there particular pieces that, you know, you feel kind of, um, are a bit stronger in terms of kind of realizing, you know, the, the potential for these, uh, these, uh, more kind of personal works, um, and maybe we could kind of highlight some of those. Sure. Um, if we're talking about my show Radar Home, 11813, um, there's a painting in that show called Aunt Carol. And that is a great example of one of the, what I consider a more raw painting. It's not been sterilized or covered up with layers of geometry or outlines of storm systems. It's left in its like first emotive state. Um, if someone were to compare that one to another painting in the show called Bald Mom. You'd see the difference I'm talking about. Um, Bald Mom started just like Aunt Carol did. It was a, you know, Caucasian figure. It's from a really emotional point in time when my mom started losing all of her hair. But then this painting started to get covered up and layered and hidden by um, an outline of a weather radar, all of these light blue rays, and then the whole thing got totally overlaid by a spider web kind of woven directly on the wall, kind of, um, it attaches it to the wall, basically. And so those two paintings are really, for me, easy to see where the change happened. Well, and one thing I hadn't asked either, um, is this also like an exhibition where you, you've started exploring videos or has that been going on for a while? Um, I've been making videos uh, for a long time. Um, and quite frankly, the more involved they get, the more help I need. I do not have any video training. Mm -hmm. iMovie <laughs> tutorials. <laughs> um, and there's a great video artist in town called, uh, whose name is Colin Richard. And he's done some of the more involved work for me. But anyway, um, I've done a few videos working uh, with TV meteorologists, actually. I've been fascinated with the idea of meteorologists doing the, the nightly performance on the news of giving us the weather, but with just the green screen behind them. This idea of how they still act as an oracle of this thing that truly cannot be captured or predicted as much as we want it to be. Um, those were my first two videos. And then I started working with, um, there's a whole series of work we haven't talked about, and we don't need to, about Karen Carpenter and Julia Sugarbaker from the 80s sitcom Designing Women. I did some video work uh, about them. They were stand-ins for my mom and me. And then in the past few years, I've worked with taking footage from my personal home videos and replacing a figure with complete like cable scrambled pixelation and how that's replacing this figure with technology or these saturated colors, you know, what that means. Then the figure becomes like a storm in motion on the screen. And then um, for this latest video, it's all digitally layered home videos. So there are moments in the video, which you can watch on my website, 
where things get totally abstracted because it's been so compressed. And then there are other moments where a figure kind of rises to the foreground. And those are, no surprise, my family members. And um, then the soundtrack is similarly layered, digitally layered, uh, personal recordings of tornado sirens in Illinois, recordings of my family at the first dinner we had after my grandma passed away. There is footage of my grandma breathing on the oxygen machine during her final hours. Um, And then there's like a heart rate monitor beeping throughout. And then overlaying that sound is the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which was performed by my friend Steve Volley. So all of those kind of family memories, all of those sounds, um, ideas of birth and death and life and Christmas are hopefully coming across in those four minutes of footage. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, obviously, like you start to kind of see the layering of the images and, you know, some of the video uh, components, um, you know, and then you start kind of like, you know, thinking this this is a familiar song, you know, like you start kind of recognizing these sounds. And again, it really kind of that sound kind of gets layered as well, um, you know, with the video. So, again, I I think it's very interesting. Um, And I guess one thing that I'm kind of curious about, too, you know, what's the process been like, um, you know, kind of having to to rely um, on other other people or, you know, kind of like working with other people to kind of help, you know, um, see your work through? I think I've been very lucky in that asking for help is one of the best things I ever did. I am also open to, I don't, I hope this isn't out of laziness, but (laughs) having the collaborators, you know, idea come through a little bit or their hand come through, especially in those more technical uh, media like sound and video. Um, I don't think I would be as open-minded if we're talking about painting and drawing and my sculptures. Mm -hmm. This most recent glitter floor installation is the first one um, where I had um, someone really kind of intimately help me with the installation. And that turned out pretty well. It turned out great. That was my friend, Andrea Henry. She did a great job. So now I know that, okay, I can loosen up about that too. Um, But all of those things are pretty different from the video and sound. Because I am in no way trained in either of those, I have to sort of blindly trust my collaborator or my um, helper, assistant. And now that I've done it a few times, I feel fine about that. And I've worked with the same people for years now. So I do not feel self-conscious about saying, no, not like that you know, maybe more of this, things like that. Well, and it's interesting to think about, you know, this, this relationship of kind of like working with other people. Um, because again, a lot of times artists kind of have this, um, (laughs) perception, you know, like artists are just kind of like in the studio, um, toiling away, you know, and kind of, um, just working on whatever. Um, and I think again, a lot of times just kind of having that interaction would be something that would, you know, help you to reevaluate or, you know, kind of even give you uh, new ways of seeing the work. Um, and I guess one of the things that I'm kind of curious about too, is, you know, how has the experience been for the people that see your work? Uh, you know, again, the viewer, uh, as it were, you know, the people that know me since I'm in my hometown and that's where the show is, I've had a lot of family and friends go see the work. And some of those friends, they, they 
get pretty emotional watching that video. They, they end up coming out pretty teary eyed, but it's because they recognize those people. They see my parents, they see my grandma and they grew up with that song as well. You know, so I, I do think that there's a little bit of, of that personal relation element that I've got happening, but I've also heard from people that I don't know very well at all. Um, that the more universal concepts that I was, was hoping to portray in the video piece, especially that, that those are coming through as well, even if it's just kind of cycle of life stuff or the idea of memories being very intangible and, and abstract. And, um, and then there's, you know, the few gut wrenching moments of, a of sort of realizing the sounds that you're hearing that I don't, you know, it's pretty heavy handed stuff, which I have a, I definitely have a history with being <laughs> pretty heavy handed as far as like literal things go. Um, I don't know, but it was very important for me for that video to be capable of emoting that much for people. Well, and I do want to take a minute again. Um, I, so again, your show is up and you know, if I'm not mistaken, this is the last week that is up. Am I correct? That's correct. This is the last week of the show. Well, and I know that we'll highlight some other things kind of coming up, and, and I know this is the last week of the show, but, you know, again, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Where Where is the show at, and, um, you know, uh, what's involved? Yes, so Radar Home 11813 is um, a multimedia show, and it's really, it's got a lot going on, quite frankly, but it's an exploration of the the past three years of my life, my family's life. So it's rooted in autobiography of dealing with various health issues of my some of my dearest and closest family members, and then the loss of one of those family members, um, and then finding sort of joy and, and love within those relationships. I had always worked with ideas of fear, fear of loss and fear of death. Um, and then I, I realized that I, I am making work about love and relationships just as much as about things like doom and gloom. So um, the work in that show has uh, paintings, uh, digital photo collages. There's actually a wig made out of friendship bracelets. And that was created in honor of uh, my mom and my aunts who needed prostheses and, and wigs uh, due to their cancer treatment. So I had friends and, and family from all over the country make me a few hundred friendship bracelets and I turned them into a wig. And then in the digital photo collages, I'm actually wearing that wig in honor of, of the women in my family who have been struck by cancer. They're all doing great. Uh, but also because when the women in your family get cancer, you think maybe you could see your future. Or at least I have dealt with that, that perhaps this is in my future as well. So that's why I am wearing the wig in those photos. Well, and again, the uh, the documentation on your website is fantastic. Again, you can see a big overview of the exhibition. Um, you know, and, and again, one of the things that I kind of noticed right away were some of these uh, configurations where there's maybe a number of these different pieces, um, you know, hung on the same wall and kind of interacting. Um, again, if we think about maybe where you started out in terms of painting and, you know, where a lot of people maybe start out making work that is very singular and, you know, maybe it's just kind of sitting on the wall, whereas, you know, these other pieces are kind of communicating or kind of like you know starting to um feed off of each other um 
So I don't know what what, what was the uh, the relationship between um, hanging all these in, in different configurations. I clustered the works together on the wall um, for a few different reasons. One, that main long wall in the gallery space is so long, and there's a, a lower ceiling. So it was a a challenge for me to kind of curate the show with the works that I had. I also, um, I wanted my viewer to kind of be blasted, like hit over the head with these, you know, with like sensory overload. So there's tinsel, there's fake roses, there's fluorescent flaggers tape. There are these highly saturated paintings. Um, Some of them are pretty direct portraits. And I really did want that sense of, you know, I had a friend describe those clusters of artworks like tumors um, that, you know, as you walk down the hallway, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're confronted. Yeah, definitely. And again, I think it's interesting to think about maybe how a viewer might kind of build like a narrative um, with these objects that are clustered, but then also they might kind of reinvestigate the um, pieces on them by themselves, you know, um, individually, um, which kind of gives it a different flavor as well. Right. I don't know. Does that does that make sense? I do. I understand. Yeah. Separately, the artworks, um, I was fine with them, but in my studio, it it was bothering me looking at them all separately. And when I got in the gallery space and I started clustering the works together, there were a few things that happened. I liked how just overwhelming they were in groups. It was like sensory overload. They were pretty confrontational which I was happy with that. I wanted my viewer to, to feel that sense of, of overwhelming, but, um, they were, they also became very narrative. There's one called gate, which leads into grandma beach spirit and then aftermath. And that segment is so literal for me. And so I was self-conscious about that, about, you know, drawing such a, an obvious narrative, what I thought was an obvious narrative for people. I have of course come to learn that everybody sees things pretty differently. Um, I thought it was obvious, uh, you know, uh, a woman's kind of dying moments and then this kind of transcendence happening over the beach with a, it seems to be a spirit leaving a body. And then this blast sending another body outline figure kind of flying away from the photo. That's how I would describe it. That's how I just did describe it. But uh, other, not everyone is seeing it like that which has been fascinating. But anyway, I, I was okay with that literal, you know, narrative after a little while, because as you come into the sort of more hidden gallery spaces, things get a little more obscured and a little more quiet. Mm-hmm. I kind of think of the wig gallery as the hospital room. There's a painting in that gallery called view from a room with these velour curtains over it. And then the wig on a stand and that's all that's in that gallery. And then across the space is the um, video that we've discussed already. And I thought of that as a take on a living room, a family room situation. So to have the clusters of artwork of seemingly disparate materials um, introducing you to the show and then coming into these quieter spaces that made me more comfortable with the narrative quality present in some of those other works. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes total sense. Again, I mean, again, I think it's interesting because it also kind of helps some of these other pieces, you know, like, like in the video, I would imagine is projected very large. Mm-hmm. 
And um, again, it just kind of gives these different facets um, to kind of feed off of each other and, and to kind of, um, you know, wind your way back around to the, to the other pieces in the exhibition. That's exactly how I thought of it. Well, and as we're nearing the end, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, um, you know, <laughs> and no pressure again, but if there's uh, stuff that you have coming up that you're you're kind of like looking at um, in terms of uh, new directions, new exhibitions, and, um, you know, just what people can expect out of your studio. Well, I'm very excited to be a part of um, the exhibition program at my airport, um, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds silly, but I, I love the idea of having my work. Um, at this location where people come and leave my city. So I'm going to have a few sculptures on display at Lambert International Airport here in St. Louis. And then I'm set to be in a small group show in Chicago sometime this year at, at The Learning Machine. And I'm also very excited about that. I'm working on, uh, ever since installing my show here in St. Louis at the Sheldon, I've been constructing uh, more of these little tumors. I'm calling them tumors. And I basically, I'm using trash from my studio. It's not trash. Of course, it's, you know, shredded family photos and fake feathers and rocks. I make these homemade geodes with homegrown crystals. Um, there's cut up paintings and basically I'm hot gluing all of this crap together <laughs> and <laughs> making, making these sculptures that, that I think are just beautiful. And they say, they say everything I want to say in these little hot messes, basically. So um, I'm very excited about those. Hopefully those will be in my next two shows. Interesting. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you this morning about your work. You too, David. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions and for doing this for all of us. Well, the the trick is, is that I'm really just doing it for myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, it's just something where, it's so much uh, more interesting to kind of get the perspective of, of the maker and to kind of have that, that history. Um, Cause it really kind of just changes uh, the, the way that you wind up seeing the work, you know? Yes. It is all certainly connected for me anyway. It's, it's almost an obvious, you know, linear situation for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, David. Thanks once again to Amy for joining me, and please go check out her website, amyrydell.com. Again, her exhibition, Radar Home 11813, is still on view at the Sheldon Concert Hall and Art Galleries in St. Louis. Otherwise, please visit her website to stay up to date. You can see her work at the Lambert Airport as well as Chicago later on this year, but please go to her website and check out what exhibitions are coming up. If you happen to like Studio Break, you've liked what you heard, please be sure to visit our Facebook page. Like the page there. It's a great way to stay up to date with new podcasts and other interesting stuff. So please like our Facebook page. You can follow our Tumblr account at studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, send your tweets to at Studio Break on Twitter. Say hello there. Share stuff. We love hearing from people. And also, again, I would highly encourage you to visit that iTunes link. Just click below. Go and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And if you would, please leave us some comments there. Again, it just helps with visibility and getting the word out there. And you can easily do that, of course, by sharing any number of these podcasts. So please share away. 
I am excited to announce that Eli Craven will be coming on next week to talk about his upcoming show at Demo Project in Springfield. Again, Eli was selected as the winner for the 2016 Studio Break competition, so we're very excited to have him on, and that opens January 20th. Let's see. Otherwise, I do want to thank Skylar Mail for providing the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. And, of course, if you want to see some of my artwork, you can visit davidlinaway.com. And, of course, please be sure to say hello on Facebook or whatever social media you prefer. Again, it's always great to hear from folks. Aside from that, I wish everyone a very productive time in the studio. We'll talk to you real soon.